It has been a very interesting day. I don't know how you guys' this morning has been. Mine's been a little weird. I uh, got up this morning and uh, I was thinking about my notes and what we were going to talk about this morning and I, I had a question. I was like, I wonder what... I wonder what version of that word is used in the Bible in that part that I'm gonna talk about later, and you'll see it later, but uh, basically I stopped for 20 minutes and went and did a bunch of research and then rewrote a bunch of my notes and uh, added some stuff and got here 17 minutes late, and then the whole rest of the worship team showed up a little bit late too, so we've kind of been behind the ball all morning. So we did worship practice, and we did worship my first service, and we just did it again, and my voice is like, barely working. So uh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Also, uh, I've been nervous for today. Xander, you want to bring that down just a titch? Thanks, buddy. Maybe a little more. So uh, I've been really nervous about this. So last night I actually didn't sleep. I'm running on like four hours now and uh, we're going to have fun. Yeah, this is going to be a good time. Uh, so we're going to start good and we're going to end good, but there might be a little part in the middle where you guys are like, Derek, what are you talking about? What are you doing? And uh, yeah, just hang in there. It's going to end well. Um, everybody online, hello. How are you? I hope you're doing well. I'm not there to talk to you, but Linda is. So that's fun. Uh, sorry, guys. This is just going to be, I don't want to kill you and I'm going to get louder. So there we go. There aren't enough of me. There aren't enough of me. Thank you. So <clears throat> kind of a lot of stuff's been going on. This, today is my first day back on stage since the end of February, I think, because I've been running computers and doing other stuff for church, and I haven't had a chance to get up here. I haven't gotten to do Sunday morning worship. I've been back there, like doing this all day, every day. It's been nuts, and all kinds of stuff's been going on, and I feel like I haven't really gotten to connect with you guys in any way uh, that I'm used to, because I'm you know background guy, hiding out, doing stuff. But we're here now, and I'm excited. I'm also very tired, but I mentioned that, so now I'm being redundant. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Something happened. July 1st, Pam and I, uh, July 1st was Pam and my 10th anniversary at Destiny. So we love it here. We love hanging out with you guys. We love, we love serving here and being part of this church. It has been an amazing 10 years and we can't wait to see what God's doing moving forward. So <clears throat> I did have a really hard time uh, coming up with what I was gonna talk about today. Normally I have something kinda of in the works. Usually I'm, I'm working on something, I'm thinking about something and I've got something ready to go. But this time I didn't. And Sean even gave me like six weeks, I think, to get ready. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what way to go. And you guys know how my brain is, it's kinda of like a junk drawer. You gotta pull it out and dump it out and then rearrange stuff to figure out what's going on inside. And, <clears throat> I've finally come down to something, uh, and, and I feel like God's brought us to something that's going to be good, and hopefully we leave here feeling uh, freedom, peace, and hope. With what's going on in the world, all right, let me back up a hair. This discussion could go very bad, <laughs> or it could go very good, or it could end up somewhere in the middle. So... There you go. Uh, <laughs> but 
But basically, uh, Sean and I were talking about this, and we were just like, grace, grace, all the grace. I'm like, okay, all the grace. Because this could be a, a difficult subject, but in the world right now, we're experiencing, I think, less freedom. And a lot of us are kind of panicky about it. We're, we're concerned. And, and rightly so. Uh, we're, we're told to stay home. We're told to wear masks. When I wear a mask, I do not feel like I'm in public. Um, the first time I ever used headphones on a stage, I was 16, and I put on big over-the-ear ones. And covering my ears kind of secluded me. And I found after a while, I started to hurt, and I couldn't figure out why. And it was because I was playing like this. And the headphones tend to separate me and pull my, my attention down and, and, and kind of seclude everyone around me. So now when I use headphones, I usually leave one partially out or all the way out so that I still feel like I'm connected with you. But I feel like our masks kind of do that. We put a mask on and we're not connecting with the people around us. We feel less free. We feel bound. But it's something that we find ourselves doing. Uh, so, you know, we, we need to find some freedom today. How about peace? Not a lot of peace going on. Right? We're watching face, uh, social media, we're watching the news, we're, we're having discussions with friends, and I'm like getting no peace anywhere. All the discussions I'm having right now with everybody that I'm having discussions with um, are about what we're afraid of and what we're scared of and how the world's gonna be rough. And, and it's, it's, it, it seems like a lot of the input right now is bringing us down. The world is just kind of spinning and it's crazy. But I believe that Jesus is gonna bring us some peace today, okay? And we need hope. We need hope. The world needs hope. And I'll tell you now, there's plenty of it, all right? So between here and there, uh, we're gonna ask a question. Before we get to that, let's talk about what Pastor Sean's been talking about. What has he been saying? What's, what's the phrase we've been using? Anybody? What? <laughs> Quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. We're gonna talk about it one more week. Next Sunday, I believe Pastor Sean is gonna close that series. And <clears throat> this discussion that we're gonna have today kind of fits in there. Uh, being quick to listen and slow to speak automatically implies that we open our minds to new information. Me being quick to listen and slow to speak is not because um, <clears throat> I'm letting you say your piece and then I'm spending extra time formulating my response, although that is what we need to do. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not using your talk time to come up with my own response. That's not what listening is. Being quick to listen is me saying, you might have information I don't have. And I'm willing to hear what you say, interpret it, and decide if it is something that I need to accept and apply or respond to. But if we don't listen, we don't get to that response. We just have an argument. So being quick to listen and slow to speak implies that we open our minds to new information, but it also implies our willingness to allow information to change our thinking. If I'm going to have a discussion with someone and I am going to listen to them, I must also, uh, taking the time to listen to someone implies, like it should in it, at its core, at its base, uh, mean that I am open to what you have changing the way I think. 
That does not mean that what you have to say will change the way that I think, but it may, and I'm allowing that. See, a lot of times when we have a discussion with someone, we decide what they believe before they start speaking. We don't hear a word they say, and we end up shouting at each other, but nobody's actually heard each other. And that's not what this is about, okay? So quick to listen, slow to speak, implies that we're willing to learn potentially new information. So being quick and slow to listen essentially asks the question, what if? What if this person is right and I am wrong? What if this person is wrong and I'm right? What if this discussion isn't going anywhere and I need to not respond just because arguing is dumb? Okay, if it's not gonna be a conversation, responding just amplifies things, right? So being quick to listen, slow to speak asks, what if I'm wrong, what if they're right? What if there's information I haven't learned? What if there's information I haven't considered? If is a big word. When I was 16, 17, my good friend David Combs and I would um, be driving around Gillette. as what we did in the late 90s. We would cruise and we'd drive around and we'd always be talking about stuff and I would always be complaining about something. I'd be complaining that this person didn't do and I wish this person had done this or what if this person had done that or what if this person behaved differently? What if that, and my, and my friend David, so wise for his young self, would say, if is a big word. If is a really big word. And essentially what he was saying is that the, the word if, uh, in, in my context, was always directed at the past that can't be changed or other people's behavior that is outside of my control. And so my wishing and my wondering and my what ifs were wasted. Held within this simple word, is all that could have been and all that might yet be. All the good, all the bad. But today's discussion is a what if that absolutely applies to the moment. What if we don't know what we think we know? <clears throat> what if we don't know what we think we know? Isaiah 55, eight and nine says, my thoughts, this is God speaking, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. What if we don't know what we think we know? I would pose, and my argument today uh, for you to listen to and judge for yourself and apply it to your lives if you like, um, is what if we don't know what we think we know? What if we don't know God like we think we know God? And this is where things get a little bit rocky and it's gonna be rocky for a little while, but we are gonna end with freedom, peace, and hope. So hang in there, all right? Uh, God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. My ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It's a problem that plagues humanity. I think our, our number one problem is that we look out for number one. 
I am more important than everybody, and so I must take care of myself. That is the core to humanity. And that's the, one of the first things that Jesus comes against, right? Jesus is like, no, it's not you for you, it's you for everybody, and then everybody gets taken care of. Uh, so, so Jesus comes against that I'm number one mentality, but an, uh, another thing that we have to be aware of is um, our propensity to believe that we know everything and that we're right. The reality is we think we know so much. I think of Miracle Max in uh, Princess Bride. Oh, you think you know so much. That was actually a decent, I felt good about that one. First service was horrible, that one was okay. Uh, Billy Crystal's amazing in that movie. I read that he, like three days, he just never did the same take twice, never said the same words twice, and just completely uh, amazing. Anyway, we can talk about that a whole nother time. Um, but we think we know so much. We think we know, we never grow out of our teenage brain that says, I know everything and I think I'm, and I'm right. Okay, you know, we get into puberty uh, or, or pre-puberty. Child. Uh, you know, we get 11, 12, we start to think, I know everything. I know what to do. I can do it. It's my way. I can do it my way. And, and we do that all through our teen years. And then sometime in our 20s, we start living life. We start experiencing the bills coming in, the job gets boring, and suddenly we're like, oh, snap, mom and dad knew something. And we're surprised that we didn't know something. We're surprised at our ignorance. And then our life goes on. We get kind of comfortable, we get acclimated, and then maybe we get married. We get married, all of a sudden we find out our spouse is a completely different person and living with somebody is a completely different thing and we find out again that we don't know what we thought we knew and we're surprised. You guys have heard the young married couple? Oh my gosh, I can't believe they do this. I can't believe they do that. I didn't know, I didn't know. I didn't know it was gonna be like this. Then you move on, get comfortable. Things get comfortable. You feel like you've got a good handle on life and you have children. And you find out once again that you know nothing. And you can talk to anybody before they've had a child. Like parents, you know this. You remember when you were this person. Before you had children, you were a little bit scared of the unknown. But by and large, you were like, man, you love them, you hug them, you feed them. It'll be fine. And then you had children. And you found out it's so much more fun than that. It's just great. And uh, with every phase of childhood that your children go through, I'm opening up a clock because that one's not right. You find out with every phase that your children go through that uh, you knew less than you thought. And every time, every phase, we find out that we, ah, throw my hair back, it's on cable. It's beautiful. <sighs> We don't know what we think we know. So the great theologians from Men in Black changed my life. They did. These guys right here. In this moment, this moment in cinematic history changed my life. It built, it introduced me to the fact, uh, sorry, that's not the right line. Uh, <laughs> this helped me to, for, to <clears throat> form my perception of humanity and frame my understanding of our desperate need for mercy. So we've got <clears throat> Jay here on the left, that's Will Smith's character, and Tommy Lee Jones is playing a character named Kay. 
And Jay has just been introduced to the fact that aliens are not only real, but they're everywhere. Like everywhere he looks, especially in Manhattan, aliens, right? That looks like a weird human. That is a weird human, but that normal looking guy next to him, alien. Uh, that's, that's going on. So Jay is like shocked still. He's just learned this. He's just met aliens. He's just had this moment. Um, and and Jay, Jay says, speaking to Kay, so this guy's speaking to that guy, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. You could tell people that aliens are real. They'll be okay. They're, they're, they're good. And Kay responded, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. He's referring to the mob mindset. You guys seen that recently? I don't know, maybe. Maybe it's just me. Kay goes on to say, 1,500 years ago, everybody knew that the earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew that the earth was flat. And, and also a little bit now, but mostly 500 years ago, everybody knew the earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that humans were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. And so as we're asking this question, what if I don't know what I think I know, we look at a history of people learning new things and realizing that the things that we knew, the things that we were devoted to, the things that we fought and killed for, that we died for, we didn't understand. We see it all throughout history. <clears throat> One of the many trademarks of, of humanity isn't just, just that, but specifically thinking that we know God. We think we know how God thinks. We think he know how he, we know how he feels. We think we know what he wants. We think we know who he loves and who he doesn't love. We think we know how he loves. And we think that God and I have an understanding. Um, this God and I have an understanding phrase is one that my dad used to use and that I've heard many people say. And ultimately what that means is I know who God is. I don't like who he is. So he and I have an understanding that he's gonna stay over there and I'm gonna stay over here and we'll be okay as long as we stay within our boundaries. But that implies the idea of uh, uh, God and I having an understanding implies that I know who God is and that I understand him. I love C.S. Lewis uh, when he's talking about Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion. They're like, everybody thinks they know what to expect out of Aslan. And then constantly everybody's repeating, he's not a tame lion. You don't know what he's gonna do. So <clears throat> looking, eh, I had a question and we're gonna start earlier. So the question is, how did the Pharisees miss Jesus when they knew so much? Because those guys were, Geniuses. But we're going to start at the beginning or closer to the beginning. <clears throat> Adam and Eve. God said, You can have everything. Don't touch that. Adam and Eve go, Eh, we know better. We'll do better. They sin. Their choices imply that they felt that their way was better and that they understood better. King Saul, first king of Israel, um, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. God actually asked for there to be a separation of church and state. He wanted the church to be holy and he wanted the government out of it. That was the goal, okay? And um, Saul wanted to go to battle, but he wouldn't go to battle unless the, the proper sacrifices had been made. But the priest wasn't there. He, Saul grew impatient, said, ah, forget it, I'll do it. 
Saul did the sacrifices and lost his kingdom for it because he was disobedient, because he thought he knew better than God. He thought he knew better. He thought he could get away with more. Let's look at Job for a little while. Um, I like Job. I love his story. Um, I kind of like the arguments and stuff, but I mostly love God's response to Job at the end. Um, Am I like boring you guys? Because Royce over here is about to fall asleep. So I thought I'd I thought I'd check. Are you guys with me? Are we doing okay before we jump into Job? All right, because this could get really exhausting and kind of tiring. I've got a lot of verses we're gonna go through, a lot of reading we're gonna look at. And I just wanna make sure you guys stay awake because um, if you fall asleep now, you gotta hear the whole, we we gotta stick together through the end, all right? We're gonna sew it up at the end and it's gonna be good. Uh, So Job, I love the story, but I mostly love God's response to Job at the end. I love that Job is, is smart and he's real. I love that he, uh, he experiences real life. And um, so I have, um, I used to read the New American Standard version of the Bible, and it was my favorite one. And I have a really high reading level, and it worked really well for me. But sometime in the first year, maybe the second year that I was a youth pastor in Wyoming, I was reading a scripture out of it. And I looked up and my kids went, Derek, we didn't understand a word of that. I was like, what? Well, New American Standard is like very precise English. And so I was like, well, what are you guys reading? They said, we're reading the NLT. So I got the New Living Translation and I got a study Bible version of it that I've used since. Um, and it's been my, pri- I use all of them at you know, different times but <clears throat> in research and things, but my primary is, is the NLT and specifically the study Bible. And what's great about the study Bible is it comes with histor- historical notes. Um, I like the, the, the notes on scriptures themselves, but the problem with the notes on scripture, scripture is God's word. The notes on scripture are not. So the interpretation written in those notes has to be checked and it's tedious and exhausting. It's a great resource, but it's also something I have to go. But the history is usually something that you can take. So um, I wanna read you guys the, the introduction uh, to the book of Job from my, my study Bible. Um, So when suffering comes to us, we often ask why. The book of Job examines the suffering of one man who suffered precisely because he was blameless. His friends supposed that Job was guilty of some unknown sin. They looked around at COVID and said, you're all sinners. No. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, Job's friends, they sat down on fire. They said, Job, what did you do? What sin did you commit to cause all of this, this calamity in your life? They tried to persuade him to repent, but Job did not accept their explanations. Finally, God appeared, but God did not give Job the answers he sought. Instead, God confronted him, changed his perspective, and blessed him. The heavenly setting of the book's opening and closing tempts the modern reader to cast the book of Job as something like a parable. The poetic dialogues also suggest that it is something more than just a dry historical record, but history can be described in flights of poetry just as well as in plotting narrative. The biblical record clearly suggests that the account of Job uh, is historical. Ezekiel and James uh, later referred to Job as an example of righteousness and endurance. So basically all that is saying that there's an argument that Job might just be a fairy tale or that it might be history. And the way that it's referred to in itself, in the the places, in the names um, of of places and people um, implies that it's a real thing also because it's referred to later on in scripture as as Job as a real person. We 
we're, we're leaning hard towards um, this being an actual story. However, this story was like Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis far after, after Genesis happened. So the Genesis story was shared um, from, from generation to generation by mouth until Moses wrote it down. The story of Job was done the same. We don't know who wrote Job, but <clears throat> there are tons of arguments about it. We don't need to get into it. Um, but I think that the introduction to, to Job um, leans towards a story. Not that it didn't happen, but that there was no human there watching to write down exactly what happened. So I believe that there's this moment in, in the beginning, there's a story where God's sitting on his throne and he's hanging out with all of his people and Satan comes and God's like, hey, have you seen Job? He's awesome. And Satan goes, ah, he's only awesome because you love him. And then, and then God's like, fine, test him. And Satan's like, I will. And they do. And, and Job has a hard time. Now, this whole portion of the story may have happened that way. But whether it happened that way or not, the reality is that it doesn't matter how good a person you are or how bad a person you are, you're going to go through seasons in your life. Good people have a hard time and bad people have a good time and bad people have a hard time and good people have a good time. It's part of life, okay? So essentially all of that comes down to uh, Matthew 5.45. God gives sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Part of life. So whether we believe that, and this is the argument though, is that did God sit there and really let Satan just attack a guy? And we're stressed about it. We don't need to be stressed about it because it may very well just be, that portion may be the story of how Job experienced life. So essentially Job had uh, many children and he had lots of livestock and animals and, and greatness and he lost it all. He got super sick. And, um, yeah. So what we do need to understand, though, is that Job was good. He was blameless. But his life went up in smoke, just like any of us might experience or like we're currently experiencing to a degree. Um, so Job was like Abraham. We're still in the, the pre-information um, on Job. Job was like Abraham. Okay, he was the patriarch of his family. Uh, he was also the priest, okay, because this was before, this was before um, uh, the Jewish law stuff was written. This was generations before that. So basically, he was the priest for his family. He was the one who knew the most uh, in general. He was the one who knew the most about God. He had the relationship with God. Um, he would, his children would have parties and he would go, home, go to their homes the next day and, and um, uh, uh, burn sacrifices just in case his kids sinned. Uh, he was all about um, being close to God and, and he, he, was, he was secure in his, his relationship with God. <clears throat> so again, Job finds himself in a rough patch. His friends aren't helpful. And Job essentially is in this argument with his friends. They're sitting around like a fire or something and, and they're arguing and his friends are like, well, what about this? What about that? And he's like, I know God. And Job goes for, he just rants for chapters about everything he knows about God and questioning God's motives and, and placing arguments against God. Like, can I take God to court and have this argument and have this? And Job was a smart dude and he knew God. He absolutely did. Um, I wanna go ahead and read just a, a, a little bit of some of Job's um, stuff here because I'm gonna grab the right one. It's, uh, 
it's great to read. But, okay, this is uh, Job 12, 13 through 25 or so. But true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. What he destroys cannot be rebuilt. What he puts, when he puts someone in prison, there is no escape. If he holds back the rain, the earth becomes a desert. If he releases the waters, they flood the earth. Yes, strength and wisdom are his. Deceivers and deceived are both in his power. He leads counselors away, stripped of good judgment. Wise judges become fools. He removes the royal robe of kings. They are led away with ropes around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped of status. He overthrows those with long years in power. He silences the trusted advisor, removes the inside of the elders. He pours disgrace upon the princes, disarms the strongs. He uncovers the mysteries hidden in darkness. He brings light to the deepest gloom. He builds up the nations and destroys them. He expands the nations and abandons them. He strips kings of understanding, leaves them wandering in a pathless wasteland. They grow up in the darkness without a light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. He knows God. And his view of God is flawed. He doesn't have a full picture. So none of that was wrong. None of that was wrong. God is all powerful over everybody and everything he said was true, but there's more. So after chapters of this happening, this discussion between Job and his friends, God steps into the picture and he steps before Job and this is part of what God says. We're not gonna read the whole thing because I mean, go read Job. It's It's a great story. And this is the part that I love because when God... When God steps into this moment, he steps in kind of like genie in Aladdin, like with all, all the cosmic power. God kind of steps in like that and it's big and it's fun and it's theatrical. And I I love this this moment and this picture of God and and the greatness and the words that are used, the, the, the words that God uses in this moment bring in a lot of word pictures and it plays in my mind so well. So uh, God steps in in front of Job. He says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? God looks at Job and says, brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? God steps in front of you and says, yeah, we're gonna have a talk. And you're like, sorry, I'm so sorry. So God continues, where were you? Oh, just for those of you that are interested, this is Job 38. We're gonna read two through 18. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone at the morning star, as the morning stars sang and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from its womb and, <clears throat> and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It's robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know. In Job, who held himself in such high esteem, 
Sorry, God. You are far greater than any man can know. God goes on and, and describes himself some more. And it's amazing. But in short, the, 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 the overarching uh, message is Matthew 5.45. He gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. When it rains, it waters the grass and it waters the weeds. God set things into motion and he gave us free will and he won't take it away. And so much of our suffering is either our own doing or is part of the cycle of sin entering our world. And whether Job actually did something to cause all of his problems, which I don't believe, I do believe he was having a hard time and maybe Satan caused it, totally possible. But what's, what our focus today is, what does Job possibly even really know about God? because he goes on for pages and pages. Everything he knows about God. And God steps up and says, you don't know me. That brings us back to uh, my, my original question, the question that got me thinking about all of this. How did the Pharisees miss Jesus? How did they miss Jesus? The Pharisees, okay, this is New Testament again. The Pharisees were these guys who uh, prided themselves on knowing scripture, okay? So they knew the law and the prophets and they knew them backwards and forwards, okay? A lot of the Pharisees were actually scribes as well. And the scribes actually knew it so well that they could just write it down. That was their job to be able to write this stuff down. They knew the scriptures backward and forward. They knew the law so much so that they, they even added new laws to their there are new, new rules to, to everything and made it impossible to follow, which it was already impossible to follow, but it was beyond what even God wanted and <clears throat> totally humanized the whole mess. And uh, these guys were so like pious, I think is the word I want to use. They're so, uh, um, they want everybody to see how good they are. I was reading a, a commentary on, on the life of the Pharisee and what it would look like. And uh, uh, like, if it was prayer time, they would stop and drop whatever they were doing and pray which sounds nice, except that it says that if they were like getting on a horse and had a foot in a stirrup and, oh, it's time to pray, they would pull that foot out and pray. And if they were walking down a crowded street with something on their back and, oh, it's time to pray, they would drop it and drop to the ground. And it didn't matter who they stopped or whose way they were in. They, they wanted everybody to see how great and how holy and how perfect they were. They knew God. They knew the scriptures. They knew everything you could know. So let's talk about Saul. This is the Saul that would later become Paul, the guy who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament or something like that. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The best of the best. He knew it all and he knew, he, not, he knew the rules and he knew the consequences to the rules and he would bring the consequences to the people that needed those consequences. So, so he, 
he would kill Christians and he would do it with joy because he was doing the will of the Lord. That's, that's the kind of guy he was. He would, he would and, and joyfully, like, like he was doing God's work. He'd be like, oh, I killed that guy who was, who was obviously not the kind of Jew that he needed to be. I killed him and God's happier with me. That's the kind of guy that Saul was. But in Acts uh, chapter nine, we, we read this story um, where Saul is, is writing and God shows up. And he, he has an encounter with Saul. And God, uh, God steps in and he says, hey, why are you persecuting my people? And Saul's life was changed. His life was spent following God. Let me back up. He actually was blind for, three, God, God made him blind for three days and then after three days it, it came off and we could read about it but we don't really have time right now so we're gonna skip over that part but this guy who was following God the best that he could, who knew as much as a person could know, who was hailed as an amazing religious leader was stopped by God and God said, hey, you're wrong. You're wrong about me. You're wrong about the people that I love. You're wrong about how I love the people that I love. So with this in mind, there is no shame in misunderstanding God. I wanna take all shame away from the idea that I don't understand God or I don't know what I think I know. There is no shame in it because if Saul could spend his entire life his entire life completely sold out to figuring out who God is and, and applying his life to that and doing the things that he believed God wanted him to do and he could be that wrong, so could we. So there's no shame. In fact, what happened to Saul? Did God like strike him with lightning and blow him up? No. Metanoia happened. Saul didn't come to a place of repentance and he didn't change his life and he didn't become a good guy and then come to God and be like, oh, Jesus is real. See, I've cleaned up my life. Can I come with you? God came to him, said, why are you persecuting my people? God encountered him, changed his life. God changed his mind. God changed his name. God changed his life trajectory. God gave Paul a place of honor and used him to build the church. That's the heart of God towards us in our understanding of who God is. If anybody in the story deserved to die or deserved to be crushed by the almighty hand of God, it was this Saul guy who was killing Christians in the name of God. But that was not God's response. So there's no shame when we misunderstand God. So uh, you guys have probably heard this before, but, but trying, to, uh, uh, trying to describe God, trying to figure out God is like uh, blind people who encountered an elephant, okay? See my elephant? Hmm? I'm calling him Peanuts. That's our elephant's name. Uh, so we've got a blind guy on the top who is trying to describe the elephant. He's holding the elephant's ear and he's describing, uh, it's, it's like a fan because it's waving and it's blowing air. Then the guy down here by the tusks says, it's a spear. It's a spear. 
Uh, then the guy down here playing with the trunk says, oh, it's a snake because it's wrapping around me. Uh, and then this guy over here, next one around uh, going counterclockwise says, it's a tree because he's holding onto that leg and it's big like a tree trunk. It's gotta be a tree. Then the guy on the back playing with the tail. Oh no, this thing's a rope. Then the guy up uh, on the side feeling just this, the, the expanse side, of, there's the massive side of the office says, it's a wall, it's a wall. But they're all wrong. Not one of them has it right. Not only do they not all have it right, but they don't even have a good idea of what an elephant is. And even if they all combined their ideas and combined their experiences, they would still have a really messed up view of the animal. There are many facets to an elephant. Lots of angles, lots to see, lots to describe, and even more so about God. So, if we can't know God, why try? I'm gonna tell you something about Gen Z. Okay, this generation, um, if, they th- if they think they can change something, they will. They will flock to it, uh, they, will, they will apply their, their lives to it, and they will see change happen. But if they think they can't do something, they will 100% stay home, and they won't try. Why should we try? If we can't know God, why should we try? Because he's great. Because he desires us. Because he came to us. Because he loves us. Because he reveals himself to us in ways that we can understand. See, God knows what we know. He knows what we don't know. And he knows what we could know. He knows what our puny little human minds can handle and when we can handle it. And so as we know God, and as we get to know God, and we stand on the shoulders of the generations before us, we get closer and closer to God, and we have a better and better understanding of who he is as we step forward in time. So if we look at the church from the beginning, like, uh, you know, like the early hundreds till now, a lot of change has happened because we've gotten to know God better. A life spent pursuing God and trying to get even a glimpse of who he is and how he thinks and how he loves is not a life wasted. It's 100% worth it. So where does all of this land? Where, 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 where does this all come back together? And uh, <clears throat> probably gonna get you guys out on time, so yeah, yes. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my throat is gone. I told you at the beginning we were gonna leave with freedom, peace, and hope. Where does freedom come in this discussion? We have the freedom to hold our perceived understanding of God in an open hand. As pastors, we cannot hold on to our, our youth kids or our congregant members or whatever with a closed hand. We can't say you're mine and hold on to you because one of two things will eventually happen. Either I will keep you from going where God wants you to go or when you go where God wants you to go, I'll be hurt and you'll be hurt. So we have to hold you like this, understanding that you belong to God 
and you are in our life for this season and we will love you and we will train you and we will teach you and we will spend time with you as long as you're here. But we can't stop you from going. Our knowledge has to be held the same way. This is my current understanding of God. And when that changes, I will let it go and I will adapt the new change. When I was in college, I think it was my first year when I was 19, um, we were in a class and there was this other kid who was a much better Christian than me, uh, went to all the church services, knew all the things. And the question was, does God give you cancer to bring you to him? And this kid goes, no. And I said, if it takes cancer to keep me from spending eternity in hell, bring it on. And I crushed this kid in this argument. I wiped the floor with him. I mean, I just took him out. I was relentless. I loved it. But I was wrong. God doesn't give us sickness. God doesn't waste opportunity. And if there is sickness and we happen to get closer to him through that, then all glory to him. But sickness is a result of the sinful nature that entered the world in our own choices. Not to say that you're responsible for whatever you've got. It's, it's a, a cumulative history of, of humanity. It kind of just brought us to where we are. But I believed that then. And I was okay with that then. And then I learned something new. And I have to be willing to let that understanding go and adapt to the better understanding of who God is. In Matthew 22, 34 through 40, a uh, guy comes up, uh, one of the, I think it was one of the Pharisees. I'm not gonna go there because we don't have time. But uh, Jesus, he says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You guys know this one. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, first and most importantly is love the Lord your God, uh, love God. Secondly, and equally important, is love your neighbor as yourself. So we have this, this structure where it's love God, love people, love yourself. All in one thing, okay? So the core of God's command to his people Jesus, what is the core? What is the one thing? What is the most important thing for us to do as followers of you? And Jesus says, love God, love people, love yourself. So this morning, I get up, I'm getting dressed, I'm getting ready to go, and I thought, what version of love are, is Jesus using there? I always assumed it was agape, but I was like, I better look. So I looked. And I was wrong, slightly, a little wrong, a little bit. I looked it up, uh, and agape is love which centers in moral preference. Um, uh, in secular ancient Greek, it focuses on preference. So in, in verb form, it would mean to prefer. So God prefers us. That's what agape love means. He prefers us. He, he desires us. But... Um, the word that Jesus used is actually agapo, ag agapo, no, I can't remember now. <laughs> A-G-A-P-A -A with a little thing over it, O with a line over it. Uh, I'm not good with phonics, so I think it's agapo. Um, and agapo is slightly different. I think they come from the same word and the same idea and the same intention, but agape is, is, um, is a noun. It's referring to the love. But um, uh, agapo is the... Um, is the verb, the action word, which means um, to prefer, to love, or for the believer, preferring to live through Christ. Example, embracing God's will, 
choosing his choices and obeying his choices through his power. So Jesus was essentially, I think, leading to the idea that when we wanna love God and love his people and love ourselves, that we can't rightly do that without his power. And we can't rightly do it without him. So once again, we come to a place where it's not in our hands. It's my responsibility to be obedient when I'm told something to do, but it is not my job to instigate. Once again, God influences and his spirit, Holy Spirit drives us uh, and, and draws us to what we need to do. So along with agapo, um, to love means, to, means actively doing what the Lord prefers with him by his power and direction. How great is that? That even the most basic, even the most core commandment, the thing that we're, the, the one thing that we absolutely know because somebody said, Jesus, what's the important thing? What's the one thing? Can you boil it all down? And Jesus boiled it all down to this. And even this is done in God's power and by his guidance. And if that doesn't help you feel more free, I don't know what will. Because all responsibility, I mean, outside of your obedience, all responsibility is taken out. When we say that, when, when the Bible says that this, this relationship with God is done by faith and not works, and then we have a list of things that we have to do, it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but this is all done through God's power. If it's all done through God's power, it's not done in our own works. It's done within, with him and our, and our faith in him connects us to his actions and his love and his care and his desire for the people of the world. That brings me freedom because I don't have to stress about the details as much. I don't have to worry as much. I have to be open to Holy Spirit's leading and obedient when I, know, when I, obedient when I hear the call. Okay, peace. I would hope that this discussion brings... Uh, brings you peace and maybe helps your world stop spinning at least a little bit, okay? I hope you can find comfort in the fact that Jesus can do more than you can ever think or imagine. This is um, Ephesians 3.20. I'm just gonna read it real fast. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us, ah, his power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or even think. So when we look at the news and we look at the social media discussions and we have the conversations with one another and tomorrow is scary and the world is spinning, we can have hope because God, sorry, we can have peace because our God is in control. What if he holds the world in his hands? What if he knows the beginning from the end? What if he's not surprised? What if he's not confused? What if he knows exactly what's going on? Does that bring you peace? He can do more in you, more in your family, more in your job, more in your city, more in your country, more in the world than you can even imagine. And finally, I want you guys to leave here today with hope. Hope for the future as everything is in God's hands. He's not surprised, he's not confused. He knows what goes on behind closed doors. God is in the room where it happens. Nobody? All right. Yeah. <sighs> Hamilton reference. No. Anyway, God 
knows what's happening behind closed doors. We're all freaked out because the politicians are doing some weird thing back there. God knows. We don't have to know because God knows. The creator of the universe, the guy who's got it figured out from beginning to end knows what's going on. And he's got it covered. He knows what's hidden in the hearts of men and he will prevail and we can have hope today. I don't know if you guys remember the last Sunday of 2019, but I, uh, I got to speak then too. I don't get to do it very often. And uh, I don't know, after today, I might not get to do it again for a while because this one's a little shady. I get it. But <clears throat> I shared the secret of life. Do you guys remember what that was? Oh, I'll remind you. The secret of life is to live. We were given life to live. After Jesus left, or as Jesus was leaving, he's saying, I'm coming back soon. And there was this problem where everybody that, that heard that, all the new churches were like, oh, he's coming back soon. So sell everything and don't plan on having children and just stop everything you're doing because he's coming right back 2,000 years ago. And so Paul or one of, the, one of the guys who was writing basically wrote them and was like, guys, live your life. We're supposed to be alive. Go live. Uh, my second week at Christ for the Nations in Canada, we had a guest speaker. And he stood up in front of us and he told us, young 17, 18, 19 year old minds, he stood and he said, Jesus is coming back in 2012. You're not gonna have children. You're not gonna have families. Don't even try. The next week, uh, Mrs. Nussbaum, our, uh, uh, our lady advisor and, and uh, her, her husband was the head of the school at the time, uh, she, she came in front of us and she said, you're gonna have children. You're going to experience life. The future is going to be good. Yeah. Live in the moment. Guys, the secret of life is to live. Now being said, inasmuch as tomorrow is not promised, I choose to live today with hope. I choose it. Because why waste today living with, with anything other than hope when tomorrow isn't actually promised? If tomorrow doesn't come and I spent today worrying, I did my last day. So I'm gonna live with hope that tomorrow's gonna be better and the next day's gonna be better and the next day's gonna be better. And even if this season stretches on for months or years, <clears throat> I trust that there is going to be good on the other side because God is in control. And every day that I have, I'm gonna choose hope because it might be my last and I don't wanna waste what I have. So in closing, I wanna pray this over you guys. Um, it's Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Again, this is Paul. Saul, the guy that was killing Christians, is now gonna pray for you. I love how, how the word of God works. And how things that were done 2,000, 4,000 years ago apply and, and speak to and Holy Spirit uses them and, and interacts with us. But again, guys, Enjoy the freedom that comes from knowing that God is greater than you can possibly imagine. Have peace because he can do more than you can imagine. And have hope for tomorrow because he's in control, okay? Paul wrote, and I'm praying this over you. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down in God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand 
as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how great. I missed a line, I'm sorry. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, I thank you for drawing us. Father, I thank you for your heart. I pray that, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to walk in the freedom that you died for. You died so that we could live with hope and peace and freedom. Don't let us shackle ourselves. Don't let us feel shame for not knowing you as much as we want to. Holy Spirit, continue to draw us towards you and reveal, reveal God in whatever ways you know we need. God, I trust your hands. I trust your plans. I trust you. I thank you. In your name we pray, amen.